moving on to Acts chapter 13 this morning. There's a couple of verses left in, in chapter 12 that we'll look at very briefly before we, we do move on. Well, last week we ended at verse 24 of chapter 12. And we find at that point a great contrast that had taken place and is brought to us almost ironically through the word of God. And that is that Herod had died, a man who would, for popularity ratings, have systematically had all the church leaders, the apostles, executed. A man who accepted the praise of the people, calling him a god. Upon doing so, was struck down. Struck down by God through his angel. And sometimes we wonder when people encounter angels in the pages of Scripture that many are filled with fear. Because often angels did not come with good news. There were the death angels. And so there, there's that plus the fact that where did the angels come from? They came from the presence of God, so they were illuminated with holiness. And for a sinner, that's a very frightening thing to behold. Last week, the last words about him were in verse 23. He was eaten by worms and died. But, that word, that three-letter word, as we've said so often, B-U-T, introduces a contrast. In contrast to his dying, the word of God grew and multiplied. The very thing he tried to stop was, was now growing and multiplying. Now when we read verse 24, we have to keep in mind that there, there's not an ending to verse 24 that says, but the word of God grew and multiplied and they lived happily ever after. For one thing that you can be sure of is whenever the Word of God meets with success, it will always meet also and stir up opposition. Sometimes it comes from within, and oftentimes it comes from without. We mentioned last time, in following the command of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples that they were to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the rest of the world. And as they progressed on in that order that Jesus had given to them, they did have trouble. In Jerusalem, it was Ananias and Sapphira. They were struck dead. In Judea, there was opposition from Saul. God struck him down and converted him. And further out, the word began to spread into more areas, and here came Herod from a family that had a history of trying to stop Christianity. And he is struck down by God and dies. And before we go further, note verse 25 of, of chapter 12. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. 
when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So Paul and Barnabas now returned to Antioch, where they had come previously to go to Jerusalem to bring them the offering that they needed, the assistance for the Jerusalem church that was so desperately needed due to the persecution it had been experiencing. So this further tells us that Herod's attempts to try to uh, subdue the church, kill the church, especially there in Jerusalem, is failing terribly. And we see now that other churches helping other churches and helping out those who are need, in need. Now we'll look at the fourth attempt to stop the gospel as we begin chapter 13. Now, in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of the Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, and they sent them away. So the church at Antioch had been greatly blessed. The church there was growing, and yet it had no one particular building uh, to go to yet. They met in houses, and we see that they had several capable men of God to minister and to lead them and to go to the various house churches that were there at that time. Uh, this made them all able to hear God's instruction without worrying when in verse 2 God by his spirit then commanded that the work was to continue on and the gospel was to go among the Gentiles so in many cases, in a young and fledgling church, to lose two particular leaders like Barnabas and Saul would be uh, a very difficult thing to deal with. But this church had been so blessed that they will be able to send Paul and Barnabas on their mission with all joy and all assurance that this was the work of God. As Jesus sent the 70 out in pairs, that, that kind of idea stuck with the new church. And so as they would send out their missionaries, if you will, uh, they would do them two by two. But there's something also here that we see. You notice as the command came, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice verse 3, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So a pattern is established. These men were called by God. They were recognized as called by God. And so they are sent by the church and consecrated to the work that God had called them to do. There is no self appointing, or mail order ordination, or licensing. This 
with sending out by the church, which that is the way it is supposed to be. This is the biblical pattern. So in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they, they went from Antioch over to Seleucia. That's a port city there at the, on the west coast. They took ship to Cyprus. And the wonderful thing is, in most everybody's Bible here, you have a section in the back where you can see that very thing. It's called maps. Everybody has them, but hardly anybody turns to them, it seems. But here you can see the very thing taking place before your eyes, the route that they would take. So they come to Cyprus, the island. There are two major cities that are there. And in verse 5, we hear of a, a large Jewish presence in there. In verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, that's one of the major cities there, they preached the word of God, notice, in the synagogues of the Jews. So there were more than one synagogue. And it tells us also that they had John Mark as their assistant, that is, the one who took care of their earthly needs, made sure everything was, was right and proper on that end so the two men didn't have to think about that. Now, verse 6, we, we now encounter the Paphos problem. And when they had gone through the island uh, to Paphos, another of the big cities there on the, on the island, they found a certain sorcerer a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Religion, spirituality has always been a big business. And here in this place is a sorcerer, a magician, recorded magon or magos, we get the word magi from that. Now, the, there's scales on this. In the upper end of the scales, we have the magi who were uh, those who were like astronomers and, and watched the patterns of the stars, the ones who came to, to uh, visit the Christ child. They were on the upper end of it. But then there's the lower end of it as well. And so this man was on the lower end a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, or son of Jeshua. Now remember that the name Jesus was a very popular name at that time. So therefore, we, we don't need to make a connection somehow like uh, some of the uh, people way out on the left was, well, see, Jesus had a son. no. <laughs> No, that's not the case. It's just like here we could say uh, the son of Robert. Well, there's a lot of people named Robert. So you would say, okay, it's a very popular name in that time. So we're not connecting this man with Christ whatsoever. But we also find that his name was Elymas as well, uh, which designated him as a, a wizard, magician. This man had wormed his way in to the court of the proconsul. And so a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, 
who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus here is described as an intelligent man. An intelligent man. Now very quickly, Rome was divided into provinces. And in each province, there was a governor that was appointed by the emperor and was given the term proconsul. But that person really was like king of that appointed district or province that he was in. And we, describe, we see this man described as an intelligent man, which means a man of understanding, which would lead us to think that he would not be so easily fooled by a man such as Elymas. But then we have a president that's running for president, a former president running for president again, who had religious advisors among which was Paula White. <laughs> a great deceiver, a great false prophet. And there were many like Elymas. They preyed upon the less educated. And he has many children in the world today. I was... Uh, almost amused but terribly surprised to see on, especially on the Ovation Network on cable, uh, this advertisement for uh, a Peter Popoff, who is a, he's just a fraud, a terrible man, a fraud, one of those, they call him a televangelist, but that's, that's uh, unfortunate. He's got the, he's like 75 years old and he's got jet black hair, that kind of thing going on. And he's selling what is called Miracle Spring Water. And it says right here on his own website, the Miracle Spring Water is a powerful biblical point of contact. Almost all of the miracles, both of the Old and New Testament, happened when a point of contact was used. I believe the Miracle Spring Water will help you to use and release your faith as we agree together for the miracle you need. Prayer is powerful. Matthew 18, 19 says, Again, truly I say to you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. You know, Satan used scripture too, remember that? And as we pray and believe together for your breakthrough, <clears throat> God will get involved in your situation and breakthrough will happen in your life and in the lives of your loved ones. <clears throat> so use the miracle spring water as a faith tool to remind you of God's amazing and miraculous power. You are not alone. God is with you, and I am praying for you to experience his amazing and awesome love, healing, and strength. So many people have used the miracle spring water, and their lives have been changed. Let me send you the miracle spring water that I have anointed and prayed over. Underneath there in red letters is a warning. Do not ingest. <clears throat> and my problem with it all is that if you're stupid enough to buy it, then you don't know what ingest means. <clears throat> but there are people who buy it. And you've got the actors coming up and saying, yes, I used it and... and uh, 
And the first day I, I used it, and I don't know how they used it, and I don't even want to know how they used it, but I had $10 in my checking account, and by the end of the week I had $10,000. It's all nonsense. It, but <clears throat> it still goes on, and people fall for it left and right. <clears throat> I mean, the fact that this man is still practicing, if you will, is a sign of the great gullibility that exists in the world when it comes to religion. <clears throat> well, you've got this false prophet, this magician, this, this awful man in the court, but there's a contrast as well in the court because not, not only do you have Elymas, but you have Sergius Paulus, <clears throat> an intelligent man, and what does it say about him? This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And so the proconsul <clears throat> calls for Barnabas and Saul. Obviously, their presence had become known to him. Was he merely curious? It's possible. Was he just trying to be politically aware? Maybe. Or maybe it was a true desire of knowing the way of salvation because their meeting will end in his conversion. And I think the wording that helps us to understand and to see what is going on here is that <clears throat> he desired, he sought, to hear the word of God. What is our relation to the civil authority? Well, in our confession in chapter 24 and verse 3, we're told in chapter, paragraph 3, that is, civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, Subjection in all lawful things, lawful things is commanded by them. Uh, commanded by them ought to be yield, yielded by us in the Lord, not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. And we ought to make supplication and prayers for kings and all that are in authority, that under them we may live a quiet and peaceful life, peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Well, that last section of that paragraph is quoting 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And he says, I want first of all that prayers be made for kings, for those in authority. I wonder how well we do on that particular end. Sinclair Ferguson recently wrote, how much better would a Christian serve his nation if he spent less time complaining about society and more time pleading for it in prayer. And he <clears throat> went on to point out John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was a great letter writer. That was one of his great ministries to his people and his congregation. And in one particular letter, he wrote about certain Christians who had like a spot on a tie or a white shirt that when you saw the shirt, you saw nothing but the spot. 
It made this, it stood out. And he gave different names for the different people's behaviors. And he spoke of one Mr. Querulous. And he said he wastes much of his precious time in declaiming against the management of public affairs. That is, always expressing opinions about what government or authorities or educational systems or the church he has always expressing opinions about what they are doing wrong. And he always seems to know what they should be doing right. Newton said, this man is just wasting his time and our time also. And his reason for saying this is that this man has no expert knowledge, nor any personally researched information on which he bases his judgment. He's only parroting things he picks up from talk shows and from television and the internet or some other medium, or the particular kind of literature he reads. And Newton says he's just wasting his time. Now before some say, well, wait a minute, we, we should be involved, yes, but he, Newton's not telling us not to be involved, in fact, if you read the history of biography of John Newton, he was the conscience, if you will, behind William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce wanted to go into the ministry. He was already uh, uh, in the government in, in England, and he said, stay in, stay in the government. You can serve the Lord in there. And he helped Wilberforce to become the major force in England to bring an end to slavery in that country. So he was very much involved, but in a proper and constructive way. Newton went on to say, our national concerns are no more affected by the remonstrances of, of Coralus than the heavenly bodies are affected by the disputes of astronomers. Something to think about, isn't it? We can go off and we can say all kinds of things about what's going on in Washington, D.C. And, and what has changed? Not a thing. It's not, that these, it's not to say these things are unimportant. But the question that we come up with in thinking about something like this is, how much time do we spend complaining and how much time do we spend praying? Sergius Paulus is a man. A man with a soul. And a soul that will either be going to spend eternity in heaven or spend it in hell. This man, we are told, sought to hear the word of God. And I can think from this as as we think about this man, what he wanted to do, he wanted to hear the word of God. Not, I want to hear this other opinion. He said, it says here, he wanted to hear the word of God. And how disillusioned it could have easily have become, he could have easily become, when you had the Roman gods and the emperor worshipped, and all may have become like a burden, and perhaps as nonsense. Remember when we speak of disillusionment, we think of Pilate, when Jesus speaks of truth and Pilate says, 
What is truth? What is truth? I've heard so many opinions. Well, in verse 8, we have the devil's distraction. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The devil's distraction. Elymas withstood them, that is Barnabas and, and Paul, as they brought the gospel message. And as, as either one spoke, and I, I imagine Paul is starting to take the lead at this point in explaining the things of God to Sergius Paulus, here we have Elymas interrupting and trying to refute that which is being said, desperately trying to save his own position. That's why we see Paul saying later, will you not cease perverting the straight way of God? That is, every time they came up with a fact or truth, Elymas tried to come up with something contrary. And so in verse 9, there's the devil's defeat. Then Saul, who was also called Paul. This is the first time he's called Paul here, and it's the last time he'll be called Saul. Filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's not because he changed his name. Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. And since he's going now to Gentiles, he'll have the name Paul being mostly used. In fact, it will be used from here on in. Paul, notice, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now, this picture, this picture, Paul fixing his gaze, an intense gaze upon this man. Now, before anybody reads this and begins to say, ah, this is how we speak to non-believers. This is how we speak to cult members. This is how we speak to our political opposition. Remember that this is Paul. And even more, the word tells us and makes a point of letting us know that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not just the powers of Paul but, but that special direction and inclination of the Holy Spirit. Paul fastens his eyes upon him. And what a scene that must have been. Because the Apostle Paul was not someone to strike fear into the hearts of anybody by his appearance. Turn with me for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you. In verse 10, they, they, he knows what their people are saying about him. And they said, for his letters, they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. 
and his speech contemptible. This is the man at the moment, empowered by the Holy Spirit, fastens his eyes, his gaze upon this man, Elymas. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, he becomes a spiritual Samson. You know, people always think, or you always see these drawings of Samson, and he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know. The early Arnold, not the present Arnold. But yet, the biggest thing in all of Samson's life was they were trying to figure out where does he get his strength. So if he looked like a bodybuilder, they wouldn't have had to say, well, I wonder where he gets his strength. They wouldn't have had to go through all that. But the fact is that he didn't. He looked like a normal man. But when the Spirit of God came upon him, he didn't turn green and tear his clothes. But there was an incredible strength of body that came upon him. Here, there's an incredible power of presence that Paul is receiving. Paul is affected both mentally and spiritually and physically. And he peers through the dark, demented spirit of the sorcerer. So in verse 10... You hear, oh, full of all deceit, all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for time. Now, especially verse 11 proves that he spoke and acted by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't do this. We can't tell people they're going to be blind for a certain time and they become blind. That's not, that's not ours to do. Even to the fact that in the midst of judgment, there is mercy. For he says you will be blind for a time. Not eternally blinded. But you'll be blind for time. In judgment, God remembers mercy. The result? Well, because of the man being turned blind, the pro-council believed. No. It does tell us immediately a dark mist fell on Elymas, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done and then the, the key here, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the words that Barnabas and Saul gave also gave an impact. The result, the proconsul believed, being astonished at the at the miracle, not so much. The judgment, no. But at the teaching of the Lord. So quickly, six things that we can take from this. First, as we continued on from last week, we see the work of the Lord again, preserving and prospering the church. But secondly, clearly we see in the pages that we have been looking at 
the doctrine of election in full view. And Ananias and Sapphira were not of the elect, but Paul was. Herod was not of the elect, but Sergius Paulus was. And for Elymas, we don't know. Perhaps when his blindness left him, he would be changed. The third thing that we see here, though, is the striking of him to be physically blind speaks of the spiritual state. Spiritual blindness seen in the physical blindness. He would need someone to lead him. And here, it is a judgment of God. Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that God will send deceiving spirits because people want their ears tickled. The fourth thing, rather than curse, we should bless. As hard as it is, when we look at some of the mindset and some of the policies, <clears throat> political authorities should not be an object of our hatred. They should be an object of our prayers. Our president walks in blindness. The vice president walks in blindness. The advisors that he have walk in blindness. They should not be hated. They should be prayed for. For these are real people with real souls. A fifth. <clears throat> Think of your own responsibility. Elymas fooled many, and for that he was guilty. But you know, those whom he fooled should bear a certain degree of guilt themselves because apparently he said what they wanted to hear. And then last, <clears throat> what God will do to save his people those whom God calls effectually will come despite the and all outward and internal opposition. They will come. All that the Father gives to me, Jesus said, will come to me. And those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. It is the will of the Father, he said, that of all he gives to me, I will not lose one. Let us pray then for opportunity to be able to speak a word in season, a true word of saving power. Opposition can be vocal but it can be silent as well. And someone says, well, all 
when you hear that, I, all that God gives to me, the Father gives to me, will come to me. Well, what about free will? Well, let me say this about that. If your will keeps you from Christ, it is not free, but it is in tremendous bondage. Anyone who looks at Christ and says, I don't need him, is not a person of free will, but a person that is in the bondage of sin and death. And so let's lay that aside and pray by the power of God that those who are to come to him will have their wills changed by the power of the Spirit. And if you don't know him today, that is my prayer for you. Let's stand together for prayer.